Well, what a great Sunday we've had already. We got to dedicate some uh, children. We got to celebrate with families inside of that. You sounded wonderful in your singing. It was fantastic. And then Hannah up here leading us in scripture, doing a fantastic job with that. I almost just want to sit down and we just keep singing some more. Like It's been such a good Sunday. But one of the things that we want to do, we want to get into the text. We want to get into the Bible. Everything we do at Calvary Bible Church needs to be coming from the text itself. Who has God called us to be? What are we supposed to be doing? We want to find that out from this scripture. And so that's why we do series like this. We do a market up through 1 Thessalonians or any other books that we've done to see what has God said and what is God saying. So we underline, we circle, we highlight, we draw weird arrows. Uh, We do all kinds of these things, not for that purpose, but so we can know who God is and who he's calling us to be. Quick recap of what we've seen so far through 1 Thessalonians. We saw that this church was a church of influence, that the Christians around them were following Jesus more because of what these Thessalonians were doing. Well, what was so influential about them? It was their life in Jesus, following the example of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, proving that they received the gospel. Happy to have Gary here with us last week as he filled in one of those pieces, that gospel piece, the word of God, the good news of what Jesus has has done for them. This was something that they believed, received, and accepted, and the springboard for this entire life. So we look at that church and we say, we want to be a church of influence like that as well. How do we impact the lives of Christians? How do we point people to Jesus for the first time? Well, we follow this example of the Thessalonians. Today we're going to see another part of that example, this other piece of their life that had an influence on those around them, the life that they lived while they were suffering. Yeah, that's right. Happy Mother's Day. We're talking about suffering. Now, some of you moms might be sitting there thinking, suffering, finally a message I can relate to. (laughs) I'm kidding. I don't know if you are, but I'm kidding. So as we want to see how do we live like the Thessalonians, how did they live in the midst of suffering? And our takeaway from this text will be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Our takeaway from this text is this simple phrase, in the midst of suffering, we love So as things are difficult, as there is affliction for following Jesus, we grow more and more in love. Now, we hear that sentence, in the midst of suffering, we love, and there might be a couple questions we ask of that phrase. First off, what is suffering? How do we understand that? What is the purpose of suffering? If this is something we're going through, why? And then how do we grow in love in the midst of suffering? So what is it? What's the purpose of it? How do we grow in love in the midst of it? And we'll see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We'll also continue the tradition that I have unfortunately started, where we don't actually read a whole verse. Uh, We just get a couple words in, and then I make us stop. Uh, So 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3 verse 1 says this, Therefore, and I'm going to stop us there. Uh, So (laughs) therefore is an important word. It's connected to what happens before. It either expands on an argument or it explains something more. It shows the result of it. So to understand therefore, we always ask this real cheesy phrase, what is this therefore, therefore? You guys seem to know it, which is fantastic. So to understand it, we need to go to the end of chapter 2, to the section 
that I thought Gary was going to be preaching on last week, but you know, it's fine, whatever, we'll just get to it now. So at the end of uh, chapter 2 and verse 17, it says this, But since we were torn away from you, brothers and sisters, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. So Paul and Silas, but in particular Paul in this passage, it emphasizes him, were desperately desirous to see these Thessalonians. They planted this church. They served alongside them. They served for them. They grew in deep love for them, but they were unable to get to them. They were away in Athens. They were hindered by Satan. They could not get to these people that they loved. Therefore, because of that, they sent Timothy. And this is chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy. Circle Timothy right there. Uh, we haven't had a lot of opportunity to talk about him. He's one of the, the writers of this letter, but we haven't talked too much about him. We talked a little bit about Paul, a little bit less about Silas, but I want to spend some time on Timothy. So when I think about Timothy, I always think back to my time as a student in high school or junior high, where one of the hallmark verses we'd always get to is 1 Timothy 4.12, where Paul writes this verse to Timothy and says, do not let others look down on you because you are young. As a teenager, I read this verse as like, yeah, people can't look down on me because I'm young. Like, I took it as like this, this empowerment verse, like think of all the cool stuff that I could do. I'm like Timothy. But I wish that I knew this first because there's a stronger truth here. Because the events that happen in 1 Thessalonians actually predate 1 Timothy. So what do I mean? That all this is happening at a time when Timothy was even younger. So if he had this temptation to have people look down on him for being young, he's now even younger in this passage. But what is he described as? We see it in our text. We'll finish out that verse. We sent Timothy, our brother, underline brother, and, uh, and God's co-worker, absolutely underline God's co-worker, that's a fascinating phrase, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. So in this time, when Timothy is even younger than when people were already looking down on him for being young, what is he described as? Their brother, the brother of Paul and Silas. Uh, let's just focus in, even on, on Paul. One of the most influential men to ever live is calling him brother, someone who works alongside of him, and calls him God's co-worker, one through whom God is working. That is an incredible description of this man who would have been seen as really, really young. I, at the time, read 1 Timothy 4.12 as, look at the awesome stuff I can do, but the deeper truth is here kids in the room, or teenagers in the room, because Timothy very likely would have been a teenager at this time. Look at the work God can do through you. Rather than me being able to do incredible things, God can do incredible things through you. And he's done this throughout his word. 
Davis, uh, David standing in front of Goliath, Hannah reading our passage this morning. God will work through those who are willing and faithful to him. There is no age requirement. And we see that in Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker at a time he would have just been a teenager. And he gets to go to the Thessalonians to do some incredible work inside of them. We'll, we'll touch on that in just a little bit. But we also see here Paul's incredible leadership. And Paul meets this man, sees the giftedness within him, and he spends time with him. He points him to Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. He continues to work and develop this man so that he can become a, a leader to this church and that they can be deeply impacted by who he is. We want to mimic that. So much so that we put it on our wall. Because this is what we see Paul do with Timothy. He made a disciple out of him, showing him who Jesus is and what he's done for him. But he continues to work into him to grow him into a leadership position so that he can go to Thessalonica and multiply churches while he's there. That's why we want to emphasize this. Not because it's anything that we think is a unique idea about us, but because we see time and time again those like Paul working in the life of those like Tim Timothy to make disciples power leaders, and multiply churches. So what was it that uh, Timothy was doing in Thessalonica? What was he uh, accomplishing while he was there? What was the work that he was empowered to do? Why was he an encouragement to these Christians in Thessalonica? Well, we read what it is that he's doing, but let's focus on it again. That while he was there, he was sent to establish, we're still in verse 2, underline establish, and exhort you in your faith a hard time saying that, so put up with me with, with any mispronunciations there. But to establish and to exhort you in your faith, this is to give encouragement, to, to teach you, to supply anything you might be lacking in your faith. These are two very positive things that are being said of what Timothy is doing. But he's also there in a preventative fashion as well, as we keep reading, so that no one be moved, so that no one be shaken, so that no one may be rattled and their faith may depart them because of what's going on around them. And what's going on around them? So that no one be moved by these afflictions. They are experiencing pain and suffering and hardship. And all of this is going on around them. So Timothy goes to establish them, to exhort them, so that no one may be moved. Because this is the significance of it. We'll finish verse three. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. Circle destined. What were we destined for? Affliction, suffering, pain, and hardship. This isn't a surprise. This isn't coming out of nowhere. We, those who follow Jesus, are destined for suffering. We don't always think of it that way. We think of the suffering that comes up as an inconvenience, as something that we just need to get rid of so we can do the good work of following Jesus. In the following of Jesus, we are destined for suffering. And we've talked about that uh, the, the, our takeaway from this entire time is in the midst of suffering, we love. And we had a couple questions for that. Well, what is suffering? As we look at the text, I see two examples or two sources of suffering. 
We do need to cheat back again, back into to chapter 2, but Gary didn't preach on it anyway, so I could just steal from it, so it doesn't matter. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 18, it talks about how Paul wanted to see these individuals, but Satan hindered us. So Satan, the one who works against those who follow Jesus, is a source of suffering for all who follow Jesus. Then in verse 14 of chapter 2, it says, your own countrymen were going against you. So those who are peers who oppose the work that Jesus is doing, it's another source. And just look at the life of this, this church in Thessalonica, those Christians who are there, they're suffering because God was working against them. Or sorry, no, that's not it. Satan was working against them. And also their peers, their fellow countrymen were going against the gospel being brought into their city. And this is the same fate, the same destiny for all who seek to follow Jesus. We have Satan who is working against all of God's people. And we have peers, fellow countrymen, who work against what Jesus is calling us to do. That is our destiny. Now, it's not the extent of our destiny. As we'll continue reading along in, uh, in 1 Thessalonians, we'll eventually get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In verse 9, it says this, For God has not destined, again, we got that word again, has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation in the Lord. Part of our destiny is to obtain salvation. And there's hope in that. But we are also encouraged in this time to not be unaware that our destiny involves suffering. The life that we've been given, the life of following after Jesus, is one that will be marked by suffering. Satan working against his people, countrymen working against us. Now, we are in a different spot than they were in this passage. We're not being kicked out of cities. We're not being uh, withheld from entering into society. But there are, there is anger towards people. Like, just mentioning that you go to church, there, you can evoke an angry response. There are patronizing comments like, oh, you really believe in this stuff? Like miracles, all that? Oh, it's ridiculous. We get some of those comments. Now, we're not claiming to be martyrs. We recognize that there is a lot of good that comes of living in this country, in this time and place that God has placed us. Then there also is, and we want to have a global context, our brothers and sisters in Christ who have their health and their wealth being stolen from them in the countries that they live in for following Jesus. They have a life that is marked by suffering. It is their destiny. And we who are following after Jesus ought to expect the same thing. We are destined for this. That Satan is working against all of God's people. And we have countrymen, peers, who are opposed to what God is calling us to do. That's a source of suffering for us. And the, these three men, they don't want us to be unaware, and they give this caution. Look at verse 4. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it's come to pass and just as you know. This warning is given to this church, this uh, warning from how the life of Paul, Silas, and Timothy has gone to this point, this warning that these Thessalonians know that this is happening right now. They are warned that this will continue. It is the destiny of those who follow Jesus. See, it's not a question of if we will face affliction, but it's a question of if we will be faithful in the face of affliction. That is what we're called to do. And Paul has reached his capacity. He's got to know. 
He's got to know how they're doing with this. He needs to know that they are okay in the midst of suffering that comes from following Jesus. And this is what he writes in verse 5. He says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter, this is Satan again, had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Look at how personal this is. I, Paul, I who am affectionately desirous of you, I who have loved you since the moment I got to know you, I who have been alongside of you and serving and helping plant this church, I who care so much about you, I've got to know that you're doing okay. I got to know that you're remaining faithful. I got to know that the work that we have done there is continuing and you are living for Jesus. I've just got to know. And so he sends Timothy. Because he can only help in the areas that he knows, right? Like, he can't do anything if he doesn't know if something's going on. Like, he, as their leader, cannot be a support to this church unless if he knows how they need support, right? Like, I think that all makes sense. This is why we ask. I'm going to change that. This is why we beg you to fill out these cards. We cannot be a support to you as a church if we do not know how we can be a support to you. We as your church are, love you guys and we want to come alongside of you guys and pray for you and care for you and know you and we cannot do that unless if we do know you. And that's why we ask that these be filled out. Uh, some of you might know that I... I write notes throughout the week of prayers and encouragement, and I cannot send those out. I cannot even be your pastor if I don't know who you are or how to get a hold of you. I can't support you. The staff can't support you if we don't know you. And then the prayer requests that we ask for on the backside, these go to our, our staff and we pray for those prayer requests. And as a pastor, I get to see, in our staff as well, we get to see the prayers from Boulder and Erie and Thornton all on the same page. And it's kind of become this running joke of like, hey, you guys forgot to include the Thornton ones again, because most weeks we don't get prayer requests from you guys. Now, I know God has done some incredible things at this church, but I have a hesitant to believe that God has fully perfected every single person in this room. I know there's prayer requests. I know there's suffering. Just like Paul knew that there was suffering going on, so he sent Timothy. We know there is suffering. We know there are needs in this church, and that's why we send these cards and ask that these be filled out. Please, the worst possible way to hear this is to hear this as shame or guilt being put upon you. I want you to hear this as a staff who loves you, but we are floundering at how to do that. So please let us know who you are. We can't spend any more time on it. We've got to keep going. So Paul wrote this uh, letter, or Paul sent Timothy to hear of their, their faith so he can know how to be a support to them because he knew that they were suffering. He knew that there was hardship going on, and so he wanted to help them as they were suffering because of the works of Satan against them and because of their countrymen. And, but the natural question that we ask is, what is the purpose of the suffering that they're going through? If this is something that God has destined us all for, to experience suffering, what is the purpose of that suffering? One such purpose we see in the text is that faithfulness in the midst of suffering is uh, an encouragement to other Christians. Faithfulness in the midst of suffering is an encouragement to other Christians. 
Uh, We'll pick it up in verse 6. It says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and he's brought us the good news, the only time in the Bible that good news means something other than telling the gospel. It's almost like receiving the gospel equivalent. Hearing how well you're doing is so nourishing to us, it's like receiving the gospel again. We received the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake because of our God? As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what's lacking in your faith. So this encouragement that they receive is because the Thessalonians are remaining faithful despite the suffering that's going on around them. And let's, I think it's verse 7, Paul, Silas, and Timothy said, in our distress, in our affliction, they are experiencing the same destiny, that they are going through hardship as well. What is their encouragement? For now we live, verse 8, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. In other words, you remaining faithful in the face of suffering is such an encouragement to us. We are so, so, so nourished by you remaining faithful despite the hardship that is going on around them. That is an encouragement. That is a purpose of suffering. It builds up those who are around us. But the ultimate purpose of suffering the ultimate, uh, the ultimate way that we should look at any hardship or any suffering is that through suffering we find victory. Turn with me if you have a full Bible, or, or listen, uh, either one works, to Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. So we get to the, to the end of the recorded scripture, to Revelation chapter 12, where we get to see this truth come to us. I, I got to do a lot of unpacking because Revelation needs a ton of context and we don't have a ton of time. So, so bear with me on this uh, interpretive reading. Uh, and they, who is they? This is the brothers and sisters who remain faithful even in the face of suffering. Uh, and they have conquered him. Who is him? This is the beast, the enemy of the church throughout the entire book of Revelation. So this one working against the church. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. Oh, what's going on with that? Jesus is the lamb of God. And through his death and resurrection, we can all find life. Through that act, they are able to find victory over this enemy. We got to start all over again because that was a lot of unpacking. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. The victory in Jesus looks like the victory of Jesus who went and suffered. He died so that we can live. He experienced suffering, and we should expect the same thing, that those who cling to Jesus even more than loving our lives, those are the ones who conquer. This is so counterintuitive. How does suffering lead to conquering? But it is the victory in Jesus is the same as the victory of Jesus, who was victorious in death to bring about life. Through his suffering, we have life. Through our suffering, we have victory. 
That is what we're called to do. What is the purpose of suffering? What, what, is, uh, what is the point of all this pain and hardship that we have been destined to? It is through suffering that we find victory. It is through holding on to God when everything else is slipping away. It is through trusting in God when everything and everyone else says it is so useless to trust in God in these times. It is loving him more than loving ourselves. That is where, where real victory is found. Purpose of suffering it's an encouragement to others. But the greatest and ultimate purpose of suffering is it's through suffering that we find victory. Our sentence this entire time has been, in the midst of suffering, we love. We've talked a lot about suffering so far. What is suffering? It is the work of Satan and the work of countrymen against those uh, through whom God has called to himself to oppose everything that God has called them to do. What is the purpose of suffering? It's encouragement to others, remaining faithful in suffering, and it's through suffering that we ultimately find victory. Now, how do we love in the midst of all that? We can understand, like, yes, suffering as a point. It's uh, following after Jesus will run contrary to this world that we're in. Yes, totally understand that. Can't we just survive? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Get the suffering piece, but can't we just survive? How do we grow in love in the midst of suffering? That's what we see as we finish out our text. Verses 11 through 13 says this, And now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. May you abound in love. And what's the point of this? So that shows us what the point is. To grow in love so that you may be blameless in holiness. It is loving so that we would be blameless. Everything we're going to talk about is about love. So I want you to find, I think it's verse 12, right in the center there, circle the word love. Now, who is it that we're called to love? It also says it right there. We love one another, underline one another. And all, underline all. So we're called to love one another and to love all. Let's focus on that first one. We're called to love one another. In the midst of difficulty, in the midst of our hardest times, when everything around us is telling us to give up on each other, to give up on God, that is when we're called to love even more. Now, isn't this interesting? This nation that we're in, and we're blessed to live in this nation. We aren't facing the same persecution and suffering as some of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is beautiful that God has allowed us to live in this place, but our nation is slowly drifting away from valuing the same things that God values. And what has our reaction been? Divisiveness, turning on each other, not listening to each other charitably, uh, alienating other Christians, arguing and infighting. What is it that we're called to do? In the midst of suffering, we love one another, and we have missed this badly. The purpose of all of this is so that we may be blameless in holiness. That is what it said. Another way of putting this, as we see elsewhere in the Bible, love covers a multitude of sins. It is hard to sin against someone whom you love. And we are certainly sinning against each other, so we got to wonder, what is it that we're missing with that love piece? We're also called to love all. Now, here's the thing about this word all. It's really interesting. If you look at it, it means all. We're called to love every single person. Those who are persecuting Christians, we're called to love them. 
Those who are causing us pain, we're called to love them. Those who are causing our afflictions and distress, we're called to love them. Even more than that, those who annoy us, we're called to love them. The person who cut us off on the road, the, the person who messed up our dinner, uh, all of those places, we're called to love. That is what all means. We love all. And this is all so counterintuitive to how we experience suffering and difficulty. In the midst of that, what is our prayer? Make this stop. And if it doesn't stop, our next prayer is, our next question even is, what did I do to make this happen? And yet, this is what we're called to do. In the midst of suffering, we grow in love because that is the example given to us by Jesus. As affliction increased, Jesus' love increased all the more. He went to his death out of his love for you. Jesus had every opportunity to stop this. He could have called down a legions of angels to put an end to what was going to be an excruciating death. He could have stopped it at any moment, changed course, saved himself, yet he didn't out of love for you. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, you and I can live. And while he is there, these two instances of him on the cross stuck out to me. There is one where he is in agony, and he looks out and he sees Mary, his mother, the one who birthed him. My thought when I stub my toe is there's nothing else in the world other than that pain. Jesus, in excruciating death, says, take care of her to his disciple. He cares for his, her well-being in the midst of all of his pain and suffering. He is caring for the well-being of others. This is his love for one another. But also, while he's up there, he's being mocked. And he had just been beaten. He was spit on. He was being ridiculed. Save yourself, Jesus. And Jesus prays this, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. This is his love for all. As affliction increased, Jesus' love increased all the more. So how do we grow in love in the same way? In the midst of suffering or even hardship in general, how do we grow in love? Well, the first and kind of most obvious way is you need people in your life. It is hard to love people if you don't have people in your life, people that you know and who know you. We need people in the times that we are going through hardship to help prop us up. This is the example of Paul, Silas, and Timothy in this. Remember, uh, verse 7 was, in our distress, in our affliction, we wanted to hear of your faith, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Your faith is a nourishment to us. It is encouraging to us when we are in hard times. So we need people in our lives to help us in those times, and we want to help you in that. We want to get you connected to those people who can prop you up in the times to help you grow in love when it just feels like love is the most impossible thing to do. You need people, and we want to help you in that. But those of you who have people in your life, remember, just as you need people to help prop you up, you need to be there for those who are going through suffering as well. They need you as well. This entire letter is written by Paul, Silas, and Timothy. I don't want to keep hitting on this point. They themselves are going through suffering and affliction, and yet they write an entire letter to encourage others despite their pain. We follow that example. 
We love uh, those who are around us. We are propped up by them in hard times. We help prop them up in times that are difficult as well. Uh, we also need to be doing this. I didn't prep this, so it might go bad. We also need to be doing this at all times. Think of the worst moments of sin in our lives. They are never just out of the blue. It is times when we've lost a job or some other thing has happened, which just kind of leads things to spiral out of control, or we're hungry, uh, bordering on hangry, or something else is going on, which is just leaving us at our worst. At, we are spent emotionally, and what do we revert back to in those times? Our nature, which is sinful. But if we can create a foundation of love in the best of times, it's giving us something else to turn to when things are difficult. When we just act out of instinct, if we have created an instinct of love when things are good, that is what we will go back to when things are bad. I don't have time to keep going through it. Uh, how else do we grow in love? Uh, in the midst of pain and suffering and affliction, we continue to remind ourselves of the example of Jesus what it is that he has done for us, the pain and suffering he went through to save us. When we experience hardship, the prayers make this stop. And we have every right to pray that prayer. We see that throughout the Psalms. And yet, we want to have the attitude of Jesus who moved from that prayer to one of thanksgiving, who moved from that to loving all, as we experience all that has been done for us, it overpowers all that we are experiencing now, no matter how dreadful it might be. We follow Jesus' example. We turn to thanksgiving because of who he is and what he's done. We are able to love in the midst of suffering and difficulty. You, Christian, you who are following Jesus, your destiny is suffering. There's no avoiding that. But we can respond to that in the right and proper manner which is the response that Jesus himself did, loving despite what's going on around. But just like in uh, child dedications, you are not left to raise your child alone. You aren't left to suffer alone. We want to come alongside of you and be an encouragement. We want to prop you up as you prop us up. We want to come alongside, constantly pointing you to all that Jesus has done for us, showing that we love because we have so deeply been loved. That no matter what is going on around us, in the good times and the bad, we love when things are going well, and in the midst of suffering, we love as well. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this truth and encouragement. There's the grace that you do not leave us unaware, that you warn us that this is the destiny of those who follow Jesus. We cannot expect to have a, an outcome different than our leader, than Jesus, who himself suffered. So we should expect the same in our lives. But you do not want us to be unaware of this, that when suffering comes, we don't look around wondering, what is this abnormality? But this is the life you've called us to. It's not all that you've called us to, but it's something that we should expect. Suffering, the result of Satan's work against your people, the work of our countrymen who are opposing all that you stand for. But we are not just called to survive. You have given us more than that and the ability to do more than that. You've called us to love one another, no matter what's going on around. We love fellow Christians. We love all, even those who are causing us the most pain. In all things, let us follow your example, Jesus. 
You've loved and loved and loved so deeply. And because of that, and only because of that, are we too able, Allah, uh, are we also able, allowed, and able to love 